We talk about being unclean. We consider these different offerings that were prescribed for the nation. Why did God give them these different offerings? Well, it was so that unclean people could come into the presence of a clean God, a perfect and holy God. Well, the next problem is, well, how, who is going to stand in the gap between an unholy, sinful people and a holy, pure God? God is not concerned with our holiness because coming into his presence, we might defile him. God is concerned about our holiness because coming into his presence without having our sins covered, without um, having some mediator going before that's negotiating, mediating the way for us, we will be destroyed because of the sin in our lives. We realize all of us are sinful. Not, nobody's here going, man, I got this figured out. I'm really actually pretty good. I really, no, we, we all are sinful and separated from God. We all need God's grace. And God is so awesome that he has not just said, you know, I'm just going to forgive sin and pretend like it doesn't exist because then we would be incinerated by his holiness. But he has dealt with sin. He has poured out his wrath upon sin. And that's where the brazen altar comes in. The reality that God has um, his fire and his wrath, his holiness, burns towards, uh, burns against our sin. And, and there's got to be a sacrifice on our behalf to, to deal with our sins, the sins in our lives. So that, that's the context of this. And so we need a mediator. And God calls out of the 12 tribes, out of this huge nation of Israel, one group called the Levites, the tribe of Levi. And out of the tribe of Levi, there's one, there's one person, Aaron, who's related to Moses. And Aaron's going to be the high priest. And Aaron and his sons will be the the uh, family of priests, and that will be passed down from generation to generation. And so he's giving him, he's prescribing for them how they must be consecrated and purified because they have a massive, heavy, enormous responsibility. It is up to them to rightly, accurately, meticulously, carefully carry out the specific rules and regulations that God has laid out for them so that Man can find forgiveness of sin. Worshippers can come to God and find their sins forgiven and have a right relationship with God. And if there's not somebody, if there's not a group that's purified and sanctified and set apart to do that, they, then they don't have a hope. And so there's three elements of this. One, God has practically set out a group of priests to administrate these things. But again, the point was never killing animals. The point was never burning them all on the altar. The point was never, this was a shadow of which there's going to be a later fulfillment, which has already happened, and that's in Christ. So, so there is a nation, there's a group of people called out of this nation that are high, the high priests and the priestly family out of the tribe of Levi, and that's the God's give us the prescription for those guys. But then on top of that, they are picturing another one who is a high priest who comes from a different family line, and that's Jesus. And we'll get into his family line later. But he's not from Aaron's tribe. He's not from the, he's not from the bloodline of Aaron. Jesus. Okay, he comes from a different bloodline in a different tribe. I'll tell you about that later. But then the third implication of this is God is building for himself a group of people that will be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so there's a very practical illustration in this because you need to understand something. The priest isn't a group of people. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not just a, a select group of people. It is all the followers of Jesus. It is all believers are called to be, according to 1 Peter a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's choosing. God has chosen you to be part of the holy priesthood. You are royalty. You're part of a holy, royal 
priesthood. What's the job of priests? Well, to minister on behalf of other people far from God with God. You're trying to help them get to God. You're helping them. You're helping other people find salvation and forgiveness of sins and, and, and come into the reality that, that God has provided, uh, has paid for the punishment that they deserve. All of us have been called for that. So that's the point of this whole thing. So look, I want to give you a couple images on the priestly garments. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1. And then uh, I'll jump back to this. It says, uh, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams of the basket and the basket of unleavened bread. Remember, leaven is a picture of sin. And so, so to go into the um, outer court of the temple, uh, there's not to be any leaven because that's a picture of sin. So they're going to get bread to eat and it's going to be part of the process here, but it's not going to have any leaven in it because against leaven corrupts. A little bit of leaven corrupts and that's a picture of sin. So bring in the unleavened bread and then assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the whole congregation is assembled. The priests are, are called out, set apart. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, verse 4. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And he put the coat on him, Aaron, and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of, e- of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band, and then placed the breastplate, a breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece was, he put the urim and the thurim. Uh, and he set the turban on his head and the turban in front. Uh, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar, and then on, that's the brazen altar like this, and then uh, all its utensils and the basin on its stand to consecrate it. You say, well, what are the utensils? It's not a knife and fork, okay? But if you've ever built a fire, right? You got the poker, you got the pan, you got the little, all the things that are used for tending to the fire, all that stuff has to be sanctified and purified. You can't just go grab some things and get a stick out of the woods and start poking at it. You have to have some things that have been set apart, designed specifically for ministering in the presence of God on the holy fire. And those things had to be sanctified, had to be anointed, and they had to be um, purified to be used for this purpose. And so he poured out some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, verse 12, and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, let's stop there in verse 13. So to give you uh, a background of what's happening here. So he put some pants on him first. The, one of the things that he would wear first is he had some um, breeches, skivvies, as I like to call them myself. Um, the priest could take, uh, so he would, he would wear underneath linen um, you know, uh, uh, boxers, if you will, I guess, you know, kind of what he's got going on there. And, and so that was part of, but that was part, that was prescribed because it was covering his nakedness, which is a, which was a problem after the fall. They realized they're naked and they were sinful. And so he has to cover that. So the God, it's a big deal. Um, we're a very immodest culture. 
God called his people to be a modest group, and so they're, they're covered underneath. The secondly, the second, they would have a tunic on, and then he would put a belt on, then they put a robe on top of that, and then over the robe was the ephod. And so it was the kind of uh, burgundy purple looking thing, um, very intricately woven. All of this stuff is incredibly expensive. There, there's a guy who was uh, kind of put together as best he could, try to recreate this, not using golden thread, because a lot of this, there's golden thread woven to it. And just putting together the outfit of, that the priest would wear, it cost him about $3,000 to recreate this to the best he could, not using any golden thread. So that's $3,000 today. Could you even begin to imagine how much it would have cost? It was excessively extravagant what he wore. And so uh, you have the ephod. And then you have the breastplate that goes over. And the breastplate, I don't have time to get into this in a lot of detail, but it has the Urim and the Thurim. It has 12 stones, and each stone represents, it's a different jewel, and it represents the nation of Israel. Each stone represents one of the tribes of Israel. And then on the shoulders, he has two other stones, and carved into the stones are the names of six of the tribes on one shoulder and six of the tribes on the other shoulder. The symbolism in it is amazing that God has the nation of Israel, the high priest, goes into the presence of God once a year on the Day of Atonement with the nation on his shoulders. He sacrificed on behalf of them. Every tribe close to his heart. Now, again, let me just give you another little hint here as we talked about before. I don't have time to go back to all the cross-references. But remember, these earthly things that he told Moses to build were a replica. These are an earthly replica of a heavenly, of heavenly realities. There is a temple in heaven, okay, uh, currently. There is, a, uh, there is an altar there uh, of incense, which was inside the tabernacle, where we, we see in Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah, and the angel goes. Isaiah realizes he's unclean and falls to the ground because he's in the presence of the Holy God. Angel goes, grabs coals off of the altar, I think the altar of incense, brings it and touches his lips to, to heal, the, the, to cauterize and purify the place where he recognized he was sinful. And so, again, we, there's times all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament and the book of Revelation where you see little glimpses and snapshots of a spiritual world and a heavenly reality where there is a temple that is far more glorious than the little tent that he had Moses build as extravagant as that was and the temple later that Solomon would build, um, you know, much later than this. It is an earthly temporal replica of an eternal temple uh, a temple that's that's in heaven and so uh all of these are pictures literally or figuratively of how christ our high priest stands and he has us on his shoulders we are close to his heart as we have been grafted into the nation of israel we were not necessarily born most of us are not coming from jewish blood and so we're not in by birth but he has brought us in through christ and so we're all part of this nation that he holds close to his heart on his shoulders so then you have the turban wrapped around it's about 24 feet of of uh you know of uh material and it's all wrapped around and put on top of his head and then you have a little crown there's a little metal uh, a gold uh, piece that goes there on his forehead and that's kind of the overview go to the next slide you can see it a little more in the big picture um, of what that would look like and then on that other thing i want to draw your attention to you have two things on the bottom one is a series of bells and the bells, it was to alternate. Bells and then a pom- pomegranates um, woven, like wool pomegranates put on there that are picturing life and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the nourishment that comes through Christ. Uh, but then the bells help them know 
the, uh, where the priest was and what he was doing as he's ministering on their behalf. And then the event that he's in the holy place or, or whatever, and he's ministering, and he was sinful, and he drops dead, and you, the bells stop ringing, you know, uh-oh, priest is in trouble. <laughs> Somebody needs to go get him. And so there were times where they would tie a rope to his ankle in the event that they had to pull him out because nobody wanted to go in there uh, into the presence of God to drag out the priest and risk being struck dead also. And so uh, that was also part of the, um, his outfit. Go to the next one. One more view that will see, help you see all this together. So here's another beautiful um, illustration of, of the priestly garments. So all of this, he's clothed with these things. But the rest of the priests have more common, simple. They don't have all the extravagancies of the high priest. Only the high priest has the breastplate, the turban um, with the different colors and the, the gold um, place. And his, his um, robes and the ephod and the breastplate and all those things are a little more extravagant. They have a little more common. But nonetheless, they still had prescribed things that they were supposed to wear. So moving along, the congregation is assembled. They come, and uh, one other thing I want to notice or mention for you, I think I skipped over this reading, verse 6. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with the water from that, that labor, the water labor. So why would he do that? Well, to, to be able to serve on behalf of the people, the first thing he did when he's consecrating the priests, right now, again, this is their ordination and the consecration of the priests. This is the beginning of, of how they are going to, from this point forward, minister on behalf of the people in the tabernacle. This is the start. So to get them ready for this, there's going to be seven days of sacrificing that he's laying out for us here. And Moses is sacrificing on their behalf and doing all this stuff. And they're there, you know, kind of helping him in the process. But this is the process of sanctification. So the first time to set them par- apart for this ministry, they are bathed with the water. Okay, so they would probably be down to this, the basic riches they had on, and he, he bathed them with the, their whole body. Later, they would only rinse their arms and their hands and their feet as they would minister on behalf of God in, in, the, in the presence of God. And so there was a, an ongoing ceremonial cleansing, but at the beginning there's a complete cleansing. And so there's a sacrifice on their behalf, blood is shed to pardon their sins, and then you have a cleansing process. That's going to be important later when we kind of connect the dots. So note that. All right, let's look at verse 14. So then he gets to the sacrifices. He brought the bull of the sin offering. This is, again, for unintentional sins against God. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar around and purified the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar, consecrated it to make atonement, again, covering for their sins, covering for it. So he takes the blood and he takes some of it and he puts it on his fingers and he anoints the horns, the four horns on the corners of the altar, takes the remainder of the blood from the bull and he pours it out on the side of the altar. So this is sanctifying the altar, sanctifying them, making covering for their sins. And as they're going to come into the presence of God, he takes the burnt offering and he cut the ram into pieces. Moses burned the head of the pieces of the fat and this is verse 18, 19. Uh, and he washed the entrails and legs with water. Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the hand, head of the ram. Now, remember, whenever they're laying their hands on, there's a confession of sin that's going on. They're, they're, they're confessing their sins onto this animal that's taking their punishment on their behalf. So it's identifying themselves with the pure spotless 
lamb that or, or bull or ram or whatever it's going to be sacrificed they're confessing their sins they're transferring their their um, guilt onto this animal the animal's blood will be shed and the goodness of the animal is pictured to be transferred onto them their sins transferred to the animal animal completely in the burnt offering the whole thing's burnt up on the altar and then we get to verse 18 then he pre- he presented i'm sorry we just did that uh verse 22 then he presented the other ram the ram of ordination and aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram verse 23 and he killed it and moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of aaron's right ear to get this he puts on the the lobe of his right ear and then on his big uh, on the the thumb of his right hand and then on the big toe of his right foot okay and then he presented aaron's sons moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the side sides of the altar, so around the altar. And then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and on the lobes of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat and the, of the, and the right thigh and out of the basket of unleavened bread. And before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and the loaf one the one loaf of bread with oil one wafer and place them on the pieces of the fat and on the right thigh so he's he's burning these things on the altar he's placing these on top of the the burnt offering and it was moses portion of the ram of ordination as the lord commanded moses then he took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar. He sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, also on his sons and his son's garments. And he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. So there's a picture of sanctifying, purifying his ear, his thumb, his hand, his feet. Makes you think of three things, that how do we hear the word of God? We need God to purify our our hearts and that we can be receptive to hear the word of god as we serve god with our hands the things that we do it's important that that as we're ministering as they were going to minister on behalf of the people that their hands were purified that god would would um cover their sinfulness and their hands would be uh, atoned for as they minister on behalf of the people as as they go about their way feet are a, a picture of the path of our lives and the the roads that we travel if you could just walk in their shoes if you ever walked a mile in that person's shoes. We understand that imagery of, of our feet and walk wearing somebody's shoes, and that, which incidentally they're barefoot when they're in the presence of God and in the, in the tabernacle because of it's a holy place and holy ground. So their shoes aren't on them, interestingly enough, when they're doing this. But nonetheless, we, we understand that imagery. And so as they walk, as they go about their lives, they need to have their, um, their feet also purified. And then this is where it gets interesting. Verse 33, it says that... And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of ordination are completed. For it shall it will take seven days to ordain you as has been done today. The Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You shall remain day and night for seven days performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have commanded uh, I have been commanded. And Aaron and the sons did all that the Lord had commanded uh, by Moses, all that the, the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So for seven days, they're set apart 
<clears throat> for multiple things. Part of this is for, there's some simple practical reasons. Okay, again, they're getting a new job. Their job is to minister on half of the people, and so they need to know how to do their job right because there's, there's, you know, there's significant consequences like mm, death if they don't do the job right. And so they, he wants to make sure they do it right. So there's a seven days of training happening. There's a practical reason for it. There's also a spiritual reason as they're being set apart for these responsibilities. Per, uh, they're, they're being they're being separated from the world for this period of time that for seven days they're in there at the in the presence of god um in the middle of the nation there with god ministering going through these things meditating on the goodness of god as he's forgiven their sins as he's he's he has made a covenant with them that they could be his uh they, they will be his people he will be their god he's going to watch over them and protect them and receive them in his presence even though they're unholy he's already delivered them from slavery in egypt he's already sustained them in the wilderness through meals he's already manifested his presence on mount sinai encompassing the whole thing in fire and cloud and earthquake and trumpet blowing getting louder and louder and louder and then giving his 10 commandments he's done all these things have already transpired and happened he's given them all the specifics of how the tabernacle is supposed to be built what's supposed to look like, whatever they've assembled it they did the initial sacrifice and now the 30 days after all of that He's giving them the book of Leviticus and they're fulfilling the book of Leviticus as they are continuing to prepare themselves for this ministry that will be going from that point forward. And this seven days marks the beginning of this as they're cut off for the world and and they're separated and they are purified um, for this ministry. But disobedience would put the priests in danger of death. There's a principle in Scripture and a reality that, that with greater privileges comes greater responsibility that's true in your life no matter what age you are as as our kids are young right we we don't have as high expectations but as they get older we start raising our expectations that 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 as they get new freedoms and responsibilities there's greater consequences there's greater punishment there's greater you they have to understand as we slowly are kind of helping them understand a little more weight a little more weight and when by the time you become a young adult okay which i would argue is happening around 12 or 13 but certainly as you become like a legal adult 18 ish uh then then at that point there's a whole nother set of responsibilities we want to prepare people to be able to handle that because with responsibility okay with greater um privilege comes greater responsibility so as you get more freedoms you actually get more responsibilities and there's greater consequences like life or death right and so these are important things and so these priest you might think well how awesome to be a priest Man, I, wonder, I wish i could have been a priest i wish i could be one of those guys that i could sacrifice i could be they're like the rock stars of the nation of israel that'd be so actually some of them were musicians but nonetheless they they uh they they're serving on behalf of the people in the middle that's so awesome that's so incredible i wish i could be one of the well you know the consequences of missing a note are severe okay the consequences of not being fessed up you know confessed up when you're going in there the consequences of doing things wrong could be life changing to say the least in fact that's next week this actually uh somebody dies uh two of aaron's sons will die because as soon as this is all done they're going to go and they're going to try to do things their own way and god will strike them dead and so this is this is serious stuff ministering on behalf of people in the presence of god so chapter eight is the consecration the anointing then we hit chapter nine on the eighth day moses called aaron and his sons and the elders of israel the eighth day, the day after the seven days set apart. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull, a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering with, uh, without, both without blemish and offer them before the Lord and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for the sin offering 
and a calf for the lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox for a ram and a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Something big is going to go down today. This is going to be a big day. Day number eight. It's going to be huge. Aaron, you're in the game now. You're, you're called up to bat. You're the one doing this now. You're, uh, Moses is standing by. He's kind of telling him what needs to happen when and whatever. But m- Aaron's, Aaron's He's in the seat now. He's quarterback in the game. He's up there. He's serving. And so this, they're gonna, there's a sin offering mentioned, a, a burnt offering, a, a peace offering. There's a grain offering. Only offering not mentioned. That section is the uh, trespass offering. And so, but the key to all of this is he says, today the Lord will appear to you. God's going to show up big. God is showing up big today. You're going to want to be ready for this one. So let's get ready. So they, they get all the sacrifices. They're laying them on the altar. They're going through this preparation. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar, verse 7 of chapter 9, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar, killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger uh, in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood on the base of the altar. But the fat, the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, he burns on the altar. Um, the Lord commanded, as the Lord had commanded him, the flesh and the skin, he burned up with fire outside the camp. Again, another picture they commanded. And then verse 12, then he killed the burnt offering. And then just, just drop down to verse 18. Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace for the people. And Aaron's son handed him the blood. And he threw it against the, the sides of the altar. Drop down to verse 21. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. I didn't really get into that. But one of the things they would do at one point is they would wave it over um, the priest would wave a portion and it was it was saying that this part has been sanctified and set apart and it's going to be consumed by the priest or for the worshiper, depending on what was prescribed. And they call that a wave offering. That's what that is, is that before the priest could sacrifice for the people, but they first had to sacrifice for themselves. Again, the struggle here is we're working with fallen, sinful priests. I mean, it, it wasn't just a couple days before this months, maybe. Aaron, the high priest, had been persuaded by the nation to pull their gold together and to make a calf that he fashioned, to make an idol that they fashioned into a calf that he allowed and was involved in allowing the people to worship this golden calf. They made their own God because Moses was up on the on the mountain for several days. Weeks had gone by. They hadn't seen Moses. They thought, you know what? We're going to have to come up with something. Let's just come up with our own God, even though he obviously didn't deliver us from slavery and show his power through 10 plagues and part the Red Sea and provide for us supernaturally through the wilderness food and drink and, and, and show up in his glory encompassing a mountain with fire. But that God is a little scary and a little out there. So let's come up with one that's a little more manageable. We'll just create our own. Aaron, would you help us with that? Whatever. Okay. Yes, that's what you want. I'll give it to you. And so he does it. This is the caliber of people we're working with. Okay. And so they need sanctification. They need purification. They need God to deal with their sin before they can help anybody. And that's true about all of us. That's why Jesus said, you know, before you start pointing out thorns uh, or specks in other people's eyes, deal with the log in your own. And then you'll be prepared. Then you'll be able to actually help them. But until you've dealt with your own log, you really can't help people with specks. 
And, and one of the things for us to recognize as, as, a follower, as followers of Christ and as a church or the church people or whatever is that we are awful harsh to judge sins outside the church when we don't deal with the sin inside the church. And until we really take God's holiness serious and we really say, you know what, I love you and you love me enough to where we're going to really have an expectation that we all are exemplifying Christ and that we're finding our delight and our joy in him and not idols until we're going to be honest about the idols in one another's lives. And stop trying to help one another get our idols, help our kids get their idols, polishing them up so they can have them because they really want it. And it's really spe- it, until we get to the point where we realize that, that man, we, we really want to cultivate in all of us uh, an awareness that we need Christ alone and his grace alone. And that's where our hope and our joy is found. And then we're ready to actually maybe help the world outside. And then we maybe can help some people because there are a lot of people, everybody's got a speck. They just don't see it. They're sin. They're blinded to their sin. And they need the grace and love of God poured out to them in people loving them enough to build the relationship, to get to know them, to be able to share it with them, help them see their need for Christ. And I'm going to say verse 24 uh, in a moment. We'll, we'll hit that in just, but I want to give you some practical applications for where this all comes down. So how do we approach God? What, what does this practically mean for us today? How does this translate to our lives today? What does this look like? What are the truths and the principles that we can gain from this? Well, just a couple few things are really good stuff. So how can sinful people approach a holy God? Well, the first thing is that we need to understand that they were, God is calling, that was calling them to be a kingdom of priests, not just that tribe, but we, we know that in uh, Exodus uh, 19 verse 6 so the, the book before this says that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of israel because he got out of the gates was telling them you're a kingdom i'm making you i would like to make you my plan is if you're gonna be my people you will be a nation of priests but out of that nation there will be some people specifically called to minister in a priestly role from one tribe and one family, there'll be a high priest and then a family of priests that serve with and underneath the high priest out of one tribe. But, but don't get to the point where you think that, well, they're the priest. I'm just the common national Israelite. Okay, no. In the same way to the church. God's saying, you know what? Everybody's a minister. Everybody's a missionary. I'm not the only minister. I'm not the only missionary. We are all called to do that, okay? We're all called to be a kingdom of priests, to be a kingdom of ministers, to be a kingdom of missionaries. We have all been called to that reality. So God is looking for um, God's desires to build a kingdom of priests. So it says in Exodus 19.6, share that with you. Then in 1 Peter 2.5, it says, 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves live uh, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. People for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God is assembling for us a, a, a group of people, assembling among us a group of people that he wants to, in, this, in the world, to be priests. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 through 6. We jump all the way to the last book of the Bible. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests 
to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, God is building a kingdom of priests. He's looking for not just with nation with the nation of Israel, but beyond that, calling us into this special role. The second thing is to think about the blood and the water. We need both. We need we need pardon and we need purification. The pardon part of this is is sins pardon are pardoned through Christ. So next line. Sins are pardoned through Christ. God has he's provided a sacrifice to justify us and he's paid for our sins on the cross uh, for them temporarily on the altar. Sacrifices were made temporarily pardoning them. But Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross forever. Okay, what the sin of bloods and blood, uh, what the blood of goats um, and bulls could not accomplish. Jesus has accomplished forever in, in his sacrifice. So sins are pardoned through Christ's blood. But but our hearts are purified through Christ's spirit. So God has not only provided a pardon through his death, but he's sent his spirit and he's given us a new heart. Let me show you where that we find that in scripture prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, I will put my law within them a future time. I will put my law in them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel 35, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness or uncleanness and from all your idols i'm going to cleanse you and i will give you a new heart and i will give you a new spirit and i will put uh within you and i will remove the heart of stone with from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules what hebrews said the author of hebrews actually made the point that the blood and bulls and goats could not cleanse the conscience jesus has cleansed the conscience so he's pardoned our sins he's purified us in the same way that they had to make sacrifices and they had to be cleansed with the water of the labor we have been cleansed not just our hands but more importantly the problem the place that's really dirty on us it's not your feet it's not even the germs in your mouth it's not even the germs under your fingernail the dirty part of you is your heart that's what's really the problem. And, and nothing that this world can fashion, create, no education system, no media, no political movement will ever be able to change the heart because it's desperately wicked and sick and it needs help, Jeremiah seventeen nine. And the only thing that's going to change it is God extracting the stony one and giving us a fleshly one that's alive towards him. And that happens through pardoning and the purification that comes through Christ's death and spirit. Not only um, do, is God building us a kingdom, a, a kingdom of priests, but the last thought is he is building a kingdom of priests, pardoned and purified to, number one, hear God's voice. Jesus, in the same way that Moses went and he put the blood on the ear and on the thumb and on the toe, he's done the same thing for you through Christ. He has provided for you a sacrifice and he has opened your ears so that you can hear the word of God. Do you understand that a lot of people read the Bible and they're like, I just don't see it. I, I, don't, I don't really get anything out of it. I don't really. And then you, you've come to awareness of, of your need for Christ. And, and a, a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus. They become a follower of Christ. They're born again. And suddenly they're reading the Bible. And they're like, this is really good. Like last week, it was boring. This week, it's good. What's the difference? Well, when you come into a relationship with God, his blood is covering you. His spirit is in you. Now he's opening your eyes to see because you're alive towards God when you were dead before. Now you can see what you previously couldn't see before you were reading somebody else's mail. And now God has written a love letter to you that you understand for the first time in your life. 
One of the signs of being a follower of Christ, one of the signs of authentication that I know that I know Jesus is that when I read the word of God, I can sense God speaking to me and I'm understanding. It doesn't mean that you'll understand everything in the Bible. It takes time. A lot of things are confusing. A lot of things takes time to learn, but, but you can still sense God speaking to you through his word because he has cleansed you to hear his word. And then there's the desire that, man, he has cleansed me to hear my word and hear his word. And that causes me to want to rely more on Jesus. But it also makes me want to serve other people. I want to minister to other people. He has anointed my hands to serve, your hands to serve, that we would minister on behalf of God to other people. Not only that, but the way my, I live my life is going to be different, not because I'm going to be a different kind of person, because God has changed me. Now, I, my, my life has been covered by the blood. And so now that I've been pardoned and purified and his spirits in me, and he's given me a new heart. Not only do I hear the word of God when I didn't understand it before, not only do I want to serve people that in the past I would have not wanted to serve, but now I want to serve people out of love, not out of obligation, not of duty, not because I expect to get something in return. I just want to serve people. But also the way I live my life is different. The paths I walk are different. They're, just, they're different. Why? Because I'm much better than other people now. And now I used to be a bad person. Now I'm a good person. I'm not like those other people. No, it's a lie. That's not the truth. Because Jesus has changed me and he's given me different desires and different loves and different passions. And I have found that the things I've ran in, the tracks I ran on before, only created a worse life. I, if you could go back 20 years, you go back 10 years, you go back five years, and you could make some different decisions. I, I, following Christ in, in America, I want you to understand that it, you will have a better life, not because you're going to be richer, not because you're going to be more healthy, not because you're going to... I'm not saying that life's going to be perfect. You might suffer more after following Christ than before following Christ, but I will tell you this, you'll have a better life in that you, if you, if you follow Jesus and you walk in his ways, you will not have a life of regret. And even in the midst of suffering, you will sense his presence and his power and the hope that he gives, even as we learned in James chapter 1. But you're not going to be going back, man, I really wish I did this. I really wish I would have done this. I, if you will listen to Jesus and his words and, and, and serve people and do what he says, you're, you're not going to be living a life of regrets. You're going to be a living. I'm so thankful that I obeyed him because he, he has saved me from, he has delivered me from significant consequences had I gone down that path. And many of us are in this room going, I went down that path. And God still saved me on the midst of that path. And he's put me on a new one. But I wish I would have, I wish he would have jumped in. I would have surrendered to him a lot earlier. I wish I would have been under his blood a lot earlier. I wish I would have trusted him a lot earlier. And so pardoned and purified to hear God's voice, to do God's work and to walk in God's ways, to hear God's voice, to do God's work and to walk in his ways. And then lastly, he has blessed us to be a blessing and he has, wants to display his glory. This is the last verse and then we're done. Verse 22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. And then Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. <clears throat> and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. They go in and they, sa they sacrifice on the outside. Then they go in, they put the blood on inside the, the um, holy place. They do the minister inside there, Aaron and Moses. And then right before they go in and then when they came out, they blessed the people. 
They had been purified. They had been sanctified. They had been set apart for ministry on behalf of the nation. And God had blessed them in that seven days. And on this eighth day, as they are able to step into the gap between a holy, powerful, righteous God and a sinful people, God had purified them and blessed them now that they had a right relationship and fellowship with the Father. And now they get to come out and they get to bless the people as their sins have been atoned for, covered, removed from them. And so they are blessed to be a blessing so that all can see the glory of God. And that's the last thought. God has displayed his glory from the beginning of Genesis. He speaks the world in existence and furls out a universe in all um, amazing God's creation. And then he puts them in this awesome garden. And then they sin against him and he graciously, lovingly cuts them off from the garden because they can't have a right relationship with him anymore. And so he preserves their life and he begins the plan uh, to unfold the plan to restore them one day. And so there's a series of times where sacrifices, even at Genesis chapter 3, he provides animal covering or skin animal skins to cover their sin. And then Abraham, he calls out, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, okay, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Well, God, I don't really have any kids. I'll take care of that. Don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. But we're going to make a a pact, a covenant here. And so let's cut a bunch of animals up. So he cuts the animals up. He lays half on the right, half on the left. And God manifests his glory in fire, in this like fiery pot that pours through and walks through and somehow levitates through whatever goes through the portion showing that god is agreeing to his side of the covenant and then moses was to pass through to agree to his side of the covenant and so god manifests his glory in the fire that this furnace that goes through this boiling pot that goes through the animals uh showing that god is making a promise with him an abrahamic covenant that he would carry on and he would renew with his son isaac and he would renew with his son jacob His name was changed to Israel, and he would renew for the generations to come. And then he shows up with Moses, the burning bush. God manifests his presence in a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And God shows his glory in that moment. Holy ground. And then he delivers his people from slavery, brings them to the mountain, shows his presence and his glory on the mountain. God is on the mountain declaring his glory. And then, get this, God, holy God, over here, the camps over here, God says, not only am I going to show you my glory there, but I'm going to put my glory right smack dab in the middle of your home. We're going to build a tent and I'm going to camp out there and my glory is going to be there. And he comes and he sets his glory there. And that's what's about to happen. Now, if I can give you the rest of the story, now he has come and his Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ through the blood of Christ, he has saved us through dying on the cross, not just laying his life, but I mean dying a brutal death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God. Resurrected from the dead, 40 days he's with them at Pentecost, which is the picture of the word of God coming. They celebrate the feast and the giving of the law at Pentecost. But God had already prophesied that one day he was going to give them not a book, but he was going to place the law in their heart as he took out the stony heart and gave them a heart of flesh. And his presence came and indwelt them at Pentecost. And now we not only have his blood having covered our sins, but he's given us his spirit inside us. So his glory has gone from the boiling furnace cutting through those uh, animal sacrifices to a burning bush, to a mountain, to in the center of the nation, leading them by day uh, cloud, by night fire, then residing in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And he is about to consume and manifest his glory, consuming the uh, sacrifices on the altar. 
And then we know that one day his presence would come inside us. And we're going to sing a song in a second that is just a powerful truth of these things as we meditate and we think about the goodness of God, that he is so good that he could destroy us all and would be absolutely right and justified in doing that. But he has not. He has lovingly, graciously put up with a bunch of people that are stiff-necked and prideful and self-absorbed and whatever. And he has pursued us lovingly and he has sanctified us so we can hear his word and cleansed our hearts so that we can serve him and we can walk in his ways. And he has manifested his presence in our lives and his glory that seeing and we could be seeing, people could see in the display of God's glory in our lives. Verse 24, we pray. And the fire came out from before the Lord, from the Holy of Holies, and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. A holy moment. Blown away. God had accepted the sacrifice. That's what that meant. That meant that God said, okay, we're good. It was God's way of saying, you're forgiven. I accept it. You've done what you have sacrificed as I have prescribed. You have humbled yourself. You've done these things. You are forgiven. In these next moments, as we worship, as we pray, if you've never heard the words from the Father to you, you are forgiven. I have accepted you. I would pray that you would not leave this building until you've trusted in Jesus. You've become a follower of Christ. Father, we are thankful for these realities, and we pray in these moments that, that our hearts will be surrendered to you, that we would know that we go out of here having our eyes, our ears open to hear from you and our hands to serve and our feet to walk in paths of righteousness, God, not because we're better than anybody, but because you have forgiven us, Father. And so we thank you for that. You are good. You are good, and your love endures. To Jesus' glory, we pray, we worship. Amen.